You're listening to 100 Words or Less with Ray Harkins. Greetings, good morning, good evening, good afternoon to whatever time you are listening to this beautiful little independent music-focused podcast, whether it's punk or hardcore or indie rock or emo, whatever subgenre or genre tag you put on it, that is uh, who I'm interested in having discussions with because I'm going to... I like to paint with a very broad brush here. You know, I like to pull in people that have been in small, sweaty rooms like all of us have been watching our favorite bands, finger pointing, circle pitting, stage diving, or just standing in the back and, and, you know, bobbing your head because there, those are all options that are on the table. And I have what I would like to define as a legend of the indie music scene. His name is Jonathan Ford. He plays an unwed sailor. And for those old heads, some deep dive stuff right here, Roadside Monument, who put out a couple of records on Tooth and Nail, and like we're talking mid-90s, and really were one of the first bands in that sort of Christian-adjacent scene to push the boundaries of what bands of that ilk should not only sound like, but then express themselves. So for the old heads that are in a roadside monument, you will be very excited about this episode. And if you have never messed with any of Jonathan's music, first of all, rectify that immediately. Unwed Sailor has been, they've been a band for like 20 plus years, and he's a very prolific musician. He has done a ton of cool stuff. It's in that same vein as I would actually like to define as like Tristeza-esque, like sort of instrumental. Um, It's just beautiful stuff. They uh, just recently released the Faithful Anchor, like a 20th anniversary uh, remaster of what I would define as a seminal LP in that whole sort of post-rock category. But um, yeah, also just keep They keep on releasing music. And Jonathan, as you will hear in the discussion, he is just incredibly excited to create and create some more. I was going to hype up a tour that Unwed Sailor was going to go out on, and that was kind of timed around the release of this episode. They were going to go out with me without you. But uh, alas, the stupid COVID and all of the uh, things that that has thrown us over the past two years, it claimed another uh, band canceling a tour, which sucks. But You need to get familiar with all of the Unwed Sailor uh, work and stream it everywhere, buy the vinyl, all that stuff. I get to just, I'm excited to have this conversation, obviously. First of all, some, some favors. You can throw some bones at the show. First off, Spotify has a star rating. So if you're listening to it on Spotify, throw some stars. This shows general direction. It helps the algorithm, helps the recommendations, all that other fun stuff. And um, I'd be remiss if I also did not uh, mention the breakup of every time I die, it feels pretty monumental because that you know that's a band that's existed for twenty plus years, a really important part of the uh, independent music, hardcore, metal, punk, whatever community, um, and they uh, unfortunately disbanded recently because they had some uh, pretty public drama that a lot of people were watching with uh, bated breath, I guess. Um, yeah, and so it's it, it's unfortunate that the band needed to come to an end, but um, yeah, my favorite song of theirs, "Logic of Crocodiles," love that. The Barrel Plot Bidding War. Their first EP is where I got introduced to them and just from that point on was really a, a big fan of the band and had uh, Andy on this show uh, many moons ago. But uh, yeah, you can dive back into the archives and check that out. But um, yeah, that's what we got going on. So here is Jonathan and here is uh, Unwed Sailor.
I was aware of Roadside Monium when I first started to get into, you know, punk and hardcore and everything like that. Um, Unwed Sailor, I remember, entered my life, and I felt like it, it started to exist around the same time as, which I'm sure you are familiar with the project of uh, Jimmy Laval from Tristeza. Oh, yeah. Clearly came from, you know, the uh, the, the chaotic screamo background <laughs> and everything Yo, like that. Yeah, yeah. And it, it was interesting because then that, honestly, Tristeza and uh, projects like what you were doing as well, started to open my own personal eyes up to the idea that you can create music outside of the context of what you are known for, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. And, right. but then also applying the same sort of principles to, you know, touring and everything that you'd previously done musically. Um, w- was that kind of the feeling that you were undergoing as you started to get Unwed Sailor off the ground where it was like, oh yeah, like I can do similar ish things as far as playing shows, except I'm just going to sound, you know, not like anything else that I've done before. Yeah. I mean, you know, it, I, I was pretty much, you know, I was going down the same road as roadside monument um, at that point, like, you know, booking, booking my own tours, uh, which roadside did, um, you know, playing, you know, a lot of the same venues. Um, uh, yeah, it, it was, it was a pretty natural uh, progression from both bands. Uh, the only thing I think would be different is, you know, with them with Sailor at that time being an instrumental band, there, there weren't a whole lot of us out there. Um, you know, Tristeza, I think Explosions, were, might have been starting around that time. Um, so I think uh, at first it might have been a little misunderstood, like what is this kind of thing? Where are the vocals? You know, I, I've, I've gotten so many uh, offers over the years of, you know, hey, I know a guy that could sing for you or something like that, you know? <laughs> uh, and back then I think it, it was kind of a thing where, oh, where are the vocals? But I think, you know, as you know, Tristeza uh, gained popularity and explosions in the sky, Godspeed you Black Emperor, Mogwai, um, that it be, kind of became a little more normal. Um, but I, I think, you know, during those early unwed years, what, once it kicked in, like it, it was gr- a great time for instrumental music. Like, you know, the early 2000s, I, I felt like people were really digging it, like the whole post-rock thing. Um so you know, it, it was a it was a good time during that era to be an instrumental band. I, I would agree. With, I mean, it's cool that you felt that because I I do think that people, generically speaking, were ready for something that was again akin to music that they may have listened to in their teenage years, but understood that there was an evolution in musicianship and understanding that there is more out there than, you know, just whatever circle pits and stage dives, which of course still is important, but not always. (laughs) Well, I will say we never got a circle pit or a stage dive to roadside monument. Uh, That's true. Which which I'm kind of bummed about actually, but. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that was, I mean, you guys at that time too, were also probably so weird on every show that you played that people really didn't know what to like do to you as far as like, do we, like watch this or do we, you know, like hold on to our backpacks or like, what do we do? <laughs> uh, oh, it was definitely a watch. Um, right. <laughs> and I, I, I think, you know, we, 
we had a reputation, you know, we didn't, we didn't have a lot of big crowds. Um, and, uh, but you know, occasionally we'd have the show where, whoa, like a hundred people came out. Like what happened? <laughs> you know, like the past 10 shows, there've been like three people. Um, so we, you know, it, I think, uh, but you know, it, that was an era. I, I feel like, you know, where people would just kind of would stand and watch, which is fine with me, you know, and when you have that kind of music where there is some intricacy to it and a lot of movement, um, and then you have the big blasts of distortion and then you have the quiet, you know, sections. I mean, you, I think it, it kind of naturally like invites you to just kind of pay attention more and just watch and not, you know, run around (laughs) when you're listening to it. Yeah, right. It's like the the level of engagement is uh, similar in regards to just the you know energy, but it's not as you know uh, kinetic. It's like okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna really focus on like what's happening and the atmosphere that's being created. Yeah, and I think too, you know, I mean, our heavy moments, you know, we had a couple like the song "My Hands Are the Thermometers." I mean, that's that's kind of a blazer for a good five minute, ten seconds, but. But a lot of our stuff, you know, it would it really did have the the movement. It would these blasts of heaviness and then back down to like a mellow, you know, section. So, I, you know, a lot of people probably didn't even have time to get going, you know, like if they wanted to like run around and cause havoc, you know, by the time they got going, you know, here comes the quiet part again. Right. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. You got to keep guessing. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Right. We'll, we'll pull in more of those strings here in a little bit, but um, putting the focus on you, uh, I, I know from the what the interwebs tell me, uh, were you uh, born and raised actually in Oklahoma? I was. Yep. I was born okay. at St. John's Hospital in 1974 in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And I mean, most people would not look at uh, Oklahoma or Tulsa in, in particular as being the uh, cultural hub of the United States. Um, but what was your, um, you know, what, what was your, I guess, kind of like growing up like, you know, were you the kind of, you know, kid that was wandering around in, uh, you know, the the cornfields playing with their friends? Or <laughs> <laughs> am I being too dramatic? No, I mean, well, you know, I. You know, Tulsa was a real struggle for me growing up. Uh, it was pretty isolating. It was lonely. Um, you know, I, ha- I had a few friends, but I, you know, from a young age, I I loved music so much. And you know, I started uh, as a little kid. My favorite thing to do would be to read books and listen to records at the same time. And you know, I'd sit up on my parents' like old seventies furniture style stereo that had the eight track and the record player and the radio built into it. And, um, I would just sit with my back against the speaker and listen to classical music and read like that. That was my thing. I just loved doing that. And it, I, I didn't have much luck finding other kids that liked that. Uh, you know, and then, you know, growing up in the eighties, you know, I found skateboarding and punk rock and, you know, in the 80s in Tulsa, Oklahoma, that was not a thing, uh, you, you know, and if it was, you had to really, really search for it. And it was just by chance, you know, you'd be in the mall one day and there would be like somebody on the other side wearing a pair of Vans and you would just sprint over there 
you know, and just be like, oh, hey, you like, van- you wear Vans? Yeah, you do too. Oh, do you skate? Yeah. Well, where do you skate? And then, you know, you find out about some ditch somewhere that you never knew about five miles from your house. So it was, you know, it was this very kind of isolated, lonely existence. And you, and you had these little shining moments where you found someone you could connect with. Uh, you know, and even, even the out in front of the house I grew up in, like the pavement and on the street was like almost gravel. So, we, you know, it was hard to even skate like in the street. So we would build little launch ramps in the driveway and just roll down the driveway and do rock and rolls or tail taps or whatever. So, yeah, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't easy, you know, being into music and skateboarding and counterculture in Tulsa, you know, in the seventies and eighties. Right. There was a lot of, uh, I know people always, uh, put on the rose colored glasses and opine like, Oh, it was, you know, you, you kids have it so easy now, but <laughs> there, there is that element of the, the searching out of like-minded individuals can be as simple, like you said, as just looking at a pair of shoes and being like, Oh, that person may know right. what's up. Like, <laughs> yeah. And I, takes. and I honestly think that's really beautiful. And, and part of me misses that. Like just, how special little things like that were. And, you know, that, that was a lifelong friend right there. That person you saw with Vans on and that connection you made, like it, it was just a, such a, you know, it's like a, your special crew, you know? Um, and you, it felt like counterculture, you know, you were different than everyone else in the mall, you know, just us two, we had our thing that no one else knew about. And that, you know, that was a beautiful experience that I'll always cherish. Um, so there was a good side to that too, but then there was the lonely side and, you know, being, you know, I would just sit in my room and just dream of skating in California. You know, I'd be looking through Thrasher and just looking at all these skate parks and schools with like banks and like bars you could slide and actually real pavement you could skate on (laughs) like you know i so i just would sit and just daydream about going to california yeah right i mean it makes sense because you you see all of these faraway places depicted in magazines and that was your only touch point and it was like that looks like heaven out there oh yeah (laughs) it was those and my people were there you know that that's like this this counterculture that that I was experiencing in my own little world here in Tulsa was everywhere there. It seemed like, so it felt like my world, it was like another planet that was so far away. And like, if I could only get there, but Oh wait, I'm 11. You know, (laughs) you know what I mean? Uh, It's so, so yeah, I mean, it, it was, it was, it was cool to have those kind of dreams and that yearning, but at the same time, it, it could be lonely too. Sure. Absolutely. And as you were getting into these, you know, subcultures, and like you said, having limited uh, groups of people that identified with that as well, how were your, um, you know, parents reacting to it? Or, you know, if you had siblings, like, how how were they kind of uh, treating that? Was it just this kind of really weird thing? And they just kind of let you left you to your own devices? Or were they like actually concerned? (laughs) Well, they, they were, you know, it's funny because my, my parents were older, uh, you know, borderline senior citizen. So, uh, so, uh, 
I was adopted by my grandmother. So I, she raised me uh, with her husband. So I, I kind of feel like they didn't really care that much. So I felt like they were kind of older and just they had been there and done that. And they kind of like had learned their lessons. So they just kind of let me do what I want, which mm-hmm. really surprises me, actually. Like, you know, I, I would be like like eight or something and they just let me go to movies by myself and you know, I, they just let me be pretty independent. So, uh, that was always great. And really the only, the only walls I would hit, I I remember one time, I mean, if you could even call it a wall, I remember uh, one time my dad took me to a, a Camelot music in the mall to buy like a new cassette. And so I wanted to buy uh, a Circle Jerks cassette. So I was like, okay, I want this one. So my dad takes me up to the counter to buy it. And he's looking at that name. And he, you know, he's kind of looking at me. And then behind the counter, there's this like goth kid, you know, working. (laughs) And my dad, he goes, hey, uh, so is is this record appropriate for my son? And uh, the goth kid just looks at me and then looks back at my dad. And he's like, oh, yeah, it's great. There's nothing to worry about. And, you know, it just says circle jerks on it. Right. So, uh, you know, I mean, just red flag. But my dad was like, okay. And he bought it for me. Um, So, you know, I mean, like there were like little tense moments like that of question. Uh, But, you know, I mean, I had I brought home like, you know, the the Pal Peralta boards with skulls on them and. I, they never said a word. I mean, they could have been, you know, at night when they were in bed, they could have been talking about how worried they were about me or something, but they never really like put on that, that worried them at all. Me, you know, diving into that, that kind of culture. Yeah, no, well, that's really, um, it's cool when parents either, you know, don't understand the depths of, you know, how, uh, (laughs) How, how dark some of this stuff could be. And they're just like, well, whatever, that's fine. As long as right. they're passionate about it. Like, I, I think that's the beautiful part of letting kids, you know, explore their quote unquote weird hobbies because, you know, that can lead you down to the road where you're at currently. So it's cool that they, you know, were at least permissive enough to not understand that <laughs> circle jerks may have a few questionable songs in there. <laughs> right. Or in the name alone, you know, exactly. Uh, but but yeah, you know, uh, they saw my life, you know, they saw that every day, like my whole life was going skateboarding. And then at night I would come home and listen to music and watch skate videos. So I think they saw how much this meant to me and how much a, a part of my life, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't like, oh, I go to football practice four times a week or something or no, I mean, this this kid is like waking up at 7 a.m. sometimes and like getting on a skateboard and he's out in the driveway skating his ramp. Like, right. And then, and he doesn't quit until like six or, or the sun comes down and now he's in his room watching videos about skateboarding. I mean, it, you know, I mean, looking back, if I was in their position, I would think, wow, like he really loves this. Like, right. you know, we, so we love him. So let's support him. Yep. Right. Right. Totally. 
And I guess on that flip side of that, like as you started to go to, uh, you know, junior high and high school, what, uh, you know, clearly you were leaning into the uh, skateboarding identity, as it were. Did you care about school? Did you care about sports at all? Was there anything else that you were uh, building up around yourself? I never cared about uh, about sports. Um, school was was okay. I, I actually went to a Christian school growing up, uh, which is somewhat normal, you know, living down here in the Bible Belt. So that, in a way, that was a little even more of a struggle, you know, living in a counterculture world. Uh, I can remember at one point in study hall, uh, the the teacher that was running study hall uh, came in and made an announcement one day that he was banning Thrasher magazines from study hall. And, you know, if, if you look around study hall, the only kid in there looking at a thrasher was me. Was so I, right. And, and, uh, he had said that he, he had, he had went to the grocery store or something and saw one and looked through it and saw that there were skulls in it. And that made him uncomfortable and he thought it was satanic. So they, uh, yeah, you know, so he banned thrasher magazine from study hall. So, you know, I came up against that in the Christian school and, you know, uh, there was a dress code. So I I was never able to really express myself, you know, um, wear my skate shirts uh, or wear, uh, you know, you had to wear dress shoes a lot. Uh, So I couldn't wear my ratty bands with holes in them to school. So it was it was a bummer, you know, that I, I had to be or try to be this different person at school. But at the same time, you know, I, I met some kids there that were really cool, you know, that were into heavy metal and stuff. Uh, you know, you would never know by looking at them in school cause, cause they were in the dress code, but after school, you know, they would take off the, the college shirt, you know, and they'd have like the Metallica shirt on under it. Um, so, you know, it, it was, there was kind of a, a charm about being like the outcast in the Christian school that listened to punk rock and skateboarded, but we hid, you know, we just hid under our, our uh, dress clothes during the day. But the second that bell rang, we were out, you know, like in our Pal Peralta shirts and Metallica shirts, skateboarding and with our Walkmans listening to circle jerks or whatever. Totally. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it was, it was bizarre. It, it, again, it's just that growing up in Tulsa thing, you know, it's just finding a way to be yourself amidst this, you know, this like Bible Belt culture. Oh boy, oh boy, we get to talk about band merch because that's important to me. I am seriously just spending what it feels like my life savings on band merch, and I want to help you out. Go to rockabilia.com. That is the place that you will be able to buy all of your rad stuff. And on top of it, I'm giving you 10% off. Use this promo code, 100 words or less. That's the number 100 words or less. It gets you 10% off your entire order, and you will be able to outfit your closet with all of your favorite band merch, whether it's old bands, new bands. I don't care what it is you're into. You will find some fun stuff in there. And this is an independently owned company, ships out of the Midwest, all officially licensed stuff. You're not going to be cutting the band out of your purchase with this. They get paid royalties. This is all above the board. You know, let's be honest, the bootleg community is very strong on the internet and you don't need to support that. So go to rockabilia.com, 
Use that code, 100 words or less, get all of your band merch, and then be a happy human being outfitting yourself with all of the coolest, latest, greatest stuff. Thank you, Rockabilia, for your continued support. What sort of, uh, I guess, because I'm guessing that, you know, through Thrasher, that's like you said, when you were discovering, you know, punk and all of that became more clear to you as far as like, oh, there's all of these bands and all of this stuff is kind of coming in your head. What did you have that notion that you wanted to like play in a band, even though it probably seemed so far away from you because all that stuff was happening in other parts of the country? No, at that, at that point, play actually playing music didn't interest me that much. I, uh, before skateboarding, when I was, you know, smaller and I was listening to a lot of classical music, um, I tried picking up the trumpet, uh, because I had, I loved, I like was, and still am a big John Williams fan, uh, and so I would be listening to the Return of the Jedi soundtrack and I would hear trumpets and they sounded so cool to me. So I wanted to play the trumpet. So I would try to do that. And I, you know, I, I failed miserably at the trumpet. Um, but that was really the only moment when I was like a teenager, I, it was all about skateboarding and listening to music, but I, I never imagined or thought that I would actually play it. Uh, uh, I was just too focused on how great it made me feel to listen to it and just skateboarding. That was at that time, skateboarding was my playing in a band that that's, it was just my main drive and focus. Got it. Got it. And so when did you, I guess, when did the inspiration to move to uh, Seattle come into play? Well, that, that came a little bit like, that's, that's when I decided I wanted to play music. Um, I was in, a, you know, in Tulsa after I graduated high school or right when I was graduating high school, that's when the whole, oh yeah, I could, I could play music. I could play in a band thing hit me. So, you know, I started like delving into that. Um, you know, I bought, I remember buying an acoustic guitar and an amp. And I would be in my room playing the acoustic with the amp and I would get too close to the amp and it would start feedbacking and stuff. And I remember thinking, whoa, that sounds so cool. So then I get some metal zone guitar pedal or something and plug that in and it made even more feedback. So I, that was exciting to me. And I was like, wow, I'm making all these crazy sounds and I don't even really know how to play like a solo so that, you know, my mind was opening up to just being able to play an instrument, you know, cause I feel like, you know, punk rock was definitely the invitation to almost anybody that, Hey, you can do this too. Um, you know, like for example, when Nirvana broke, I mean, that was like telling the world, Hey, you can like, you know, you can get up and just, you know, be noisy and loud and play punk and uh and do something and like make a difference sure. and you know be, and before that it was like you know the earlier punk bands you know that i mean anybody minor threat circle jerks black flag whatever but um so i think once that realization hit me that i could do this too that's when i really dove into that and 
that's when I wasn't really skateboarding as much anymore. Like I loved the culture and was still into it, but my attention went to, to pursuing this idea of me actually creating and playing music. So as I was doing that, I, you know, I, again, I got the big, the big billboard in Tulsa, like, this is not going to happen for you here. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like this is that culture just is not here for you. Um, so I realized, okay, well, I'm going to have to go somewhere else to make this happen. So I had a few like-minded friends, you know, who, who played music. And so our whole thing was, uh, we're just going to move, uh, to Portland. And so we made plans and, you know, got in a car and, and drove to Portland to live there. And then that, that, yeah. And that kind of just, that began my journey on the West coast. From there, I was just, you know, what it didn't really happen in Portland for me. So I had some people I had met, uh, that were in some bands that actually came through and toured through Tulsa and, uh, they lived down in the long beach area. So, I headed down there, you know, to see if I could find music down there. And I, you know, I played, I, I jammed a little bit with some people and, you know, got introduced to the Long Beach scene, like Zed Records and, uh, and all that. And like, it was rad and I loved it, but it, it wasn't, wasn't quite for me. I, I just didn't quite feel the connection uh, where I'd want to like stay there. So then, uh, I went back up to Portland and I, there were a couple of friends in Seattle that I had met. Uh, I had seen at a couple shows and uh, they were like, Hey, you just come on up and sleep on our couch. And so then I headed up there and then that's when everything started clicking. That's, that's where I felt like where I found my community and my, and my people. Sure. Sure. Well, and that idea of you, you know, moving to different places to kind of dip into each particular scene and see, you know, if you're able to kind of make something happen. I'm guessing that idea of like making something happen was not from a sort of, you know, business perspective. It was very much like, oh, these are people who are kind of on the same wavelength as me as far as the creative process and putting together, you know, a band. Am I correct in that assumption? Right. Yeah. I mean, the idea of business and music like n- had never crossed my mind at that point. Sure. Um, yeah, it, it was all just a drive just to play and be in a band and make a record and go on tour. Um, yeah, that's all I wanted. I, I was just uh, I, I knew that's what I wanted to do with my life. And it the idea of making money and doing that, what that I didn't care. I just wanted to feel that. I just wanted to experience that. I just wanted to find people like me that wanted to do that. And that's, that's who I really found in, in Seattle. Right. That's that, that was the, that was the journey. And so ostensibly like, you know, once you got up there and, you know, roadside kicked off, like I'm not going to, you know, go through uh, the entire history of that band, but um, you know, you guys definitely existed at this really weird cross section of, you know, bands that existed specifically within the Christian music scene. And then obviously the secular music scene. And uh, I I found it so um, 
I actually compare it a lot to the the concept of, you know, when bands were quote unquote selling out in the early nineties of like, Oh, that band's a sellout. And like now in 2021, like that concept doesn't even exist. Um, right. Right. It, it, like, and I, I feel the separation of, uh, you know, Christian bands versus secular bands is far less, you know, of a hot button issue where it's like, Oh yeah. A band spits on stage. Like that's not unchristian or whatever. <laughs> you know, how do you, how do you kind of reflect on that now where it's like everyone relatively has chilled out about that where it's like, Oh, I gotta, you know, read your lyrics to make sure that I can identify with you as a Christian band or whatever. Well, with roadside, we, we just, we ended up on tooth and nail. Like right. it, it was a thing they roadside had a lineup and, a, and an album and a seven inch before I joined and they had already signed with tooth and nail. And it was really a thing where, uh, guys in the band were friends with people at tooth and nail and those people would be at roadside shows. So tooth and nail said, Hey, would, you know, would you want to be on the label? And they're like, sure. So it yeah. wasn't a thing where there was like this, um, there wasn't this like uh focus, like, Oh, roadside monuments, uh, like Christian band on a Christian label. It was just friends made an offer to be on a record label. So they took it. Um, so, so then I joined the band and things changed. Like we got, went down to the three piece, which became the eight hours away from being a man, current taste. I'm the day of current taste stuff. Um, and we like, we were just, you know, we were listening to Rodan and Slint and Don Cavallaro and, uh, you know, playing the Velvet Elvis in Seattle, um, you know, with, uh, bare minimum and, uh, Red Stars Theory, you know, and all the, the Seattle bands of the moment. So we, like, we weren't a part of that tooth and nail Christian scene. Like we were outside of that and we really didn't want to have anything to do with, uh, the Christian tours and the Christian element of the label, we, that's just not who we were. So it was really hard for us because we were automatically associated with it because we were on the label. Sure. Uh, which I understand that. Like I, I get why people would associate that, but that's just not who we were. So it was really hard for us. Uh, it, we had to like really prove ourselves uh, I, I feel like more than a lot of other bands in that era, just because we had that, that attached to us everywhere we went. Uh, it, you know, when we, we, when we would book our own tours, uh, we found, we learned really quick, like we would, you know, we'd be booking a show in Chicago or something and we'd be on the phone with a promoter and they'd be like, yeah, great. They'd be like, so what, what label are you guys on? And if we said tooth and nail, we would not get the show. Right. So what we learned at that time was that tooth and nail was distributed through Caroline uh, distribution or Caroline records. So we just started telling the promoters that we were on Caroline records and we would get the show like no problem. Sure. So we just found ways around it, you know, to exist and, so, you know, we, we were like playing at Fireside Bowl with Don Caballero or, or playing in uh, Baltimore with Hurl or that's what we did or, you know, uh, playing in Bloomington with Adivan or like the early secretly Canadian bands. 
so that was our whole scene. So we, you know, we were just, we were separated from the tooth and nail scene. Uh, but, it, but it, it took a lot of work, <laughs> you know, uh, that we sure. didn't necessarily want to put in to do that. Right. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense because that it wasn't like something that you, uh, bargained for, like you said, it was the, especially because you were coming up at the same time that this label was coming up. And then all of a sudden there was this, uh, you know, undue burden placed upon you guys that necessarily wasn't signed up for. And that was no one's fault per se. That was just the way that it all happened. But you guys are like, yeah, we actually would rather be on touch and go like, <laughs> you know, we totally somewhere else. Yeah. And, I get that. And- yeah. And, you know, we were young, man. I, you know, I was 21 or whatever. I was like, someone offers to like put you into Robert Lang's studio with Bob Weston to record your record. You know, right. I mean, how, how am I going to say no to that? You know, right. I mean, so, exactly. so, you know, I mean, given that like tooth and nail was cool. And the fact that they were willing to do that for us, you know, they were willing to put us in the studio with Jay Robbins or Bob Weston Um, you know, and there, there were a number of times where, you know, our van would break down on the road and they would wire us money to fix it. So, you know, they were, they were, they were good to us, like in that way, you know, like there, there were some cool, some cool elements. You were supported, right, right. You were supported as a label, but then, yeah, the, just that, that notion, of the culture that was built up around it, you know, in the same way that certain bands that aren't sonically similar to other bands on a record label where it's like, you know, here's a hardcore label and all of a sudden there's like an indie rock band and people are just like, that indie rock band sucks. And it's like, well, sorry. Like that's just right. what you want to put out or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. It just, it just puts so much more work on your plate, uh, like to prove yourself. And that sucks. You know, who, who wants to have to like prove themselves? Um, but you know, there another band on the label that kind of got that too was Joe Christmas, um, who I, I'm oh, still sure. such a huge fan of that band. You know, they they did their North to the Future record with Bob Weston, you know, and they were you know they lived in Athens, Georgia. You know, they were in the Athens scene and like buddies with all the Athens bands, and so they were so far removed from the Tooth and L Christian scene, and uh, but but somehow they were, they were in it because they were on the label. It it was just really weird. You know? Um, Yeah. There were just those few bands that experienced that, you know, or you have a band like Valour 100, you know, Trey Manny from that band played in his name is alive on four AD. Right. So, so yeah, you know what I mean? It's like, there were those small handful of bands that existed outside of that world, but were still on tooth and nail. It was pretty right. bizarre. Oh, and honestly, I think the last band that really sort of encountered that weight was like Frotus, you know, it was totally like, perfect I, example. Yes. Yeah. But no, I, I agree wholeheartedly. And so as you started to you know, put out records and experience this thing that felt probably so far from where you were in uh, Tulsa, did you like touring initially? Was it kind of what you had bargained for or was it something completely different than what you'd expected? Man, I, I honestly, I loved every minute of it. I, it was, I'll never forget that first time we got in the van and with roadside and just started driving down the coast. And I just, the, the freedom I felt and the, the sense of it, like achievement I felt 
Like I, di- I, I just remember thinking I did it. I got out of Tulsa and I'm here on the West Coast, the place I'd always dream about in my room. You know, we're driving down to California. I'm in, I'm in this, ba- this van with these two dudes that I make music with that we've created that we love. And here we go, you know, and we have, uh, you know, Hoover cassette playing. Like, this is everything to me. This is amazing. Um, you know, and then, and then all of a sudden, uh, you know, antifreeze shoots all over the window. <laughs> you know what I mean? And your van breaks down. But, you know, and it's like heartbreaking. But at the same time, just experiencing all that, like that heartbreak of breaking down or the the freedom of being on the road for the first time or, you know, you know, pulling into that show, you know, at Fireside Bowl with Don Caballero. Um, it was just such an adventure and, and just an experience I'll never forget. And I, you know, to this day, I'm still touring and it's still wonderful. Um, but I, I just loved the innocence of those early times, those early tours of just that excitement. And, you know, we're, we're just going to conquer the world, you know, uh, and we, you know, are waking up, you know, you stay at someone's house and you play the show and you're waking up and pulling out of the city, you know, it's in the morning and you're just seeing all these cars driving to their jobs. And and just to know that we're in this van and we're driving to the next city and we're going to play rock and roll that night. I mean, there's just not, not, there's not a better feeling than that. It's just such a, it just feels so free. I get to welcome a new sponsor of this very show. And I can't tell you how excited I'm about this. Louisville Vegan Jerky Company. I know that's kind of maybe a mouthful, but trust me, you will want to put this into your mouth after you snack on it. And no hyperbole. I don't care if you eat meat, if you're vegan like myself, if you're vegetarian, if you like beef jerky in some capacity, you will absolutely adore this company. They have a lot of rad flavors. I have tried them all, whether it's smoked black pepper or sweet Carolina barbecue. This is off the top of my head, mind you. Like I have memorized (laughs) these flavors. It's like perfect pepperoni. Go to their website, try out their starter pack. It's all five flavors. They'll ship it right out to you. And you can also buy it in your local Whole Foods, and I know that they're carried in many other sort of natural, cool food stores that you are probably located near. But follow Louisville Vegan Jerky on the social medias. You will be able to see all the cool. They also do limited edition flavors. They do collabs with bands. So much awesome stuff. It's all a independently run company based out of where else but Louisville. So you know how much I love Louisville. You're talking about Elliot. You're talking about Young Widows. The list could go on. (laughs) Falling forward, Elliot. Oh my gosh, I need to stop myself. But Louisville Vegan Jerky, go to their website, buy that starter kit. You will thank me later. Thank you very much, Louisville, for your support of this show. It is very romantic, but it's true. I mean, you, you feel especially from a touring perspective, you feel so disconnected from the quote unquote real world. And it's moments like that, or on the flip side, when you're stuck in traffic, cause you've been driving, driving all night and you get into town at 8am and you're just like, Oh, this is terrible. Like <laughs> right, right. we're going to work or whatever, but yeah, no, you're very, you're very right. The, um, so then, you know, as you started to put more music out and kind of be more entrenched in the music business, as it were, like 
you said there was always that idea of like, well, you know, I'm sort of uncomfortable with the uh, music business as it were, but how did you kind of, I guess, pursue both of those things in tandem, knowing that, uh, you know, you needed to participate in some of it in some respects in order to, you know, kind of keep the musical uh, journey alive? Well, it, it, it came slowly. You know, I, you know, you start in little ways, you start learning about that, you know, like in Roadside Monument when the van broke down. Well, the only way we're going to get back on the road is if we get money to fix it. So where's that money going to come from? Oh, it comes from the label. Okay, well, the label sends it. Oh, well, we still have to recoup that money. Right. You know, so that you start learning things like that way. Um, and then, uh, you know, going into what Sailor, it, that became a thing where, you know, all of that was on my shoulders almost. You know, like, oh, we're going on tour and I don't have a van. So I got to go get a van or I've got to rent a van or, um, you know, oh, well, somebody, you know, somebody's got a job they and they can't get off work, you know, unless they get paid this money or something. You know, so that that starts coming into the picture and you start realizing that it's not all the carefree flying down the highway, going to the next show, you know, like you, you need money to do this. So, you know, it's just a slow learning process. Um, and I'm still learning, you know, even after all these years uh, about the music business and navigating that uh, and making things work. Sure. Yeah. I mean, any person who is building their lives around a creative pursuit, there is that notion that, okay, everything I am doing from a, you know, survival perspective of, okay, I'm going to, you know, have a job at a bookstore and they'll allow me to tour and like that. I'm going to get a quote unquote transient job because I need to be able to, you know, leave and go on tour or whatever. There are those implications that you trade off in regards to that. Right, exactly. And did you ever feel, I mean, as you were, uh, as Roadside faded away and, you know, you clearly wanted to continue on and be creative in that context, was it, um, was it difficult to kind of build your identity around, uh, you know, a, a whole other musical project? And because, I mean, most people, it's like, oh, yeah, like, you know. Jonathan from Roadside or whatever, like, you know, you always get known by your band name, like as your last name or whatever. Um, right. Was it, was it easy for you to kind of, I guess, transition out of that into, uh, you know, something new? Yeah. I never really thought about it uh, in that way. It just, it was just kind of the journey and things just started presenting themselves. Uh, you know, with Roadside, uh, there was that moment where I was playing at Roadside Monument and Pedro the Lion at the same time. Right. Like around 97, 98 or 98. And um, I had to make the decision which one I was going to go to. And I chose Pedro, the lion. Um, so that was just uh, kind of a transition that just happened. You know, there, wa- there wasn't a lot of thought of, uh, I don't know, it was just kind of the universe just made that happen or made it work. Um, and then going into Unwed Sailor, it just seemed like the natural thing to do. I, I had these, these baselines written that I, I had considered using for roadside monument, but I, I just thought they were a little too melodic or, or maybe, 
not happy is, is not the right word, but they just had a different feeling than Roadside had. So, uh, so it's just kind of a natural progression to just go into that. And uh, it just presented itself to me and it, it felt right. So I, I never really thought about having to rebuild or anything. It just, to me, it was just the right next step to take. And I, I just knew that. So I just pursued it and did it. Right. Yeah. I, it does make sense, especially when you are coming from the independent minded community and so much of it is these modest goals of like, Oh, I, I wonder what it's like to put out a seven inch. And then, Oh, I wonder what it's like to tour. You're not thinking about it in this, you know, grand overarching, like, okay, well, you know, going to play Madison square garden one day or whatever. No. Yeah. I, I never imagined that it, for me. It was, it should, it's always been since I got that, you know, since I got the bike or whatever that I wanted to play music, it's always just been, I just want to play music. Like I just, you know, I want to create music and, and, you know, I mean, not just any music, I have to believe in it and it has to be like a part of me. I mean, that's crucial to the formula, but that's my drive. It, I, I really feel like it's just in my DNA. It's just, I have to create and play music. And if I don't, like, I feel lost. I, I, I don't really know who I am and I feel confused and, don't know up from down, you know, and depressed. I get depressed. So, but when I'm creating and playing music and it it's working and it's moving, then I, I feel content and I feel right. And I, I feel good within myself. And so, yeah, I mean, that's just my, that's always my ultimate goal is just to keep, keep the music machine rolling. Uh, Cause that, that's just what always feels right to me. Yeah, that that's the that's the quest and that's what inspires you. So I mean, it, it's cool because I I do think that especially after existing for a period of time and not feeling like there has been this, you know, groundswell of success where I'm, you know, playing sold out shows across the country and it's like, you know, I I don't think even people that do experience that can sometimes get lost in the fact that, Oh, it should be an enjoyable process. And I I think that sometimes people lose the forest from the trees. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, at this point, you know, I'm 47 years old. So, you know, by the end of that tour, like I'm, you know, I'm getting towards being grumpy and if not already there, and I just want to get home and I want to hang out with my cats and watch star Wars on my own couch. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, I'm like, I love touring and I love being out there and creating and playing music. But, you know, there is the point where I'm like, okay, I do need like at least a couple days break here just to be to myself and like let my mind wander a little bit. Um, so yeah, there is that aspect too. You know, it. I love music with all my heart, but 24 seven, for an entire tour, you do need a little bit of a mental break from from all the things that go into it. Oh, absolutely! I could totally understand that. I, I, I'm sure with um, you know the the music of Unwed Sailor, like how you have progressed with that to be able to you know exist in the 
world of instrumental music, but do all of these different uh, shades and variations of it has probably been pretty gratifying for you. And I'm sure also keeps people, uh, you know, on their toes <laughs> as well, mm-hmm. where it's like, oh, you know, are we, are we getting a more synth heavy thing? Are we getting a more, um, you know, kind of quote unquote straightforward record? Uh, it, it, does it, um, I guess, is it fun for you to continually play around in these different environments musically? Yeah, it's great, man. And it honestly, Unwed Sailor keeps me on my toes too. Like I, I do, I don't sit down and intentionally try to write a, a particular sounding record. Mm-hmm. I, I'll pick up my bass and wherever my hands go, wherever my mind goes, that's just what I do and what I write. And then, um, you know, I'll come up with like the initial five second baseline. I'm like, Oh, that sounds kind of cool. And then that my brain or my mind or wherever it comes from, uh, there'll be another melody that enters my head. I'm like, Oh, okay. I'll go to that. And then all of a sudden I have the song structure and it's all on bass, all on bass guitar. And then I'll, you know, I'll go over to my little demo area and then I'll start stacking bass lines on top of that. So it really is like a thing. It's, it's like a discovery for me. It's, I don't have it planned out. It's revealing itself to me as it's happening. So I, for me, like I said, it's, just as much keeping me on my toes as the listener who gets the album. It's almost like I'm hearing the songs for the first time as they're revealing themselves to me. And I I've just found when I, when I don't think about it and I don't try, that's when, that's when it just, it happens. So that's my, my whole approach to writing songs and creating it in these records is just not trying just allowing it and and letting it happen and show itself to me. That uh, I, I really like that sentiment of just <laughs> each record is a, is a, as much of a surprise to me as it is a surprise to the listener. I just, I, that notion is really uh, powerful, I think. Yeah, it's great. It's exciting. And I I'm thankful for it. Like right. I, I feel like it, it, it makes it, you know, more of an adventure for me if I had to sit down and like slog through like these ideas that I just had and I had to like create this idea that I already have and make this song, uh, you know, that has to match this expectation that's in my mind. Like that would, I don't know. I feel like I would just get exhausted doing that. So the fact that it can be carefree and like a little, almost like a little game or something, it's like, Oh, what, Oh, that little melody popped in my head. I'm going to, I'll use that. And another thing I've found too, is I always trust my instinct and I always trust those ideas. Like if those ideas pop in my mind and I play it and you know, there'll be times when I think that's weird or is that cheesy or is that dumb? But I've learned to always accept it and hang on to it and create around it. Because every time I've done that, it makes the song that I just love and is kind of different for Umwood Sailor. It kind of expands the universe of Umwood Sailor. So it's, right. it, you know, just trusting myself and trusting all these years I put into music and, and the bass lines I've written and the songs I've written just to believe in myself and just allow that to be.
Yeah, no, that's that's really cool. Uh, two last things I want to hit on were the, you know, I'm sure because of the type of music that, uh, you know, you've been creating with Unwed for, you know, the past 20 years or so, there've probably been sort of random sync requests, you know, where it's like, hey, I want to play this, uh, you know, in my trailer or I want to play this in a video game and stuff like that. Do you have any ones that kind of stand out as being, um, it doesn't even have to be like the, you know, most like lucrative or, or a crazy one, but just like, things that have stood out where it's like, wow, I never thought my music would end up being the soundtrack to this or whatever. Well, I think the ones I'm, the two ones I'm most proud of are, uh, uh, I think it was mid two thousands. Uh, Mike Vallely had a, the, the, the skateboarder had a TV series called drive where he would just drive around the country and skateboard. And, there were some unwed sailor songs used on that. And that, that just made me so happy because I'm such a huge fan of his Uh, going back to when I was a little kid, you know, in the Tulsa skateboarding days with Pau Peralta. So that was, I was super stoked on that. And I think the one that still always gets me, man, is whenever NPR will play like a, a little unwed sailor snippet you know, after a show, uh, after fresh air or something like that. Um, that still always gets me. I, I'm like, wow, like right. NPR just played an Unwed Sailor song. Like uh, that'll never get old to me. Right. Like, did you, did you guys make a mistake? Like, did you? <laughs> oh, cause it, it, yeah, it's so surprising. Cause, cause you know, it just kind of happens, you know, in between a show or something. And uh, yeah, it's just so exciting. And I, I'm so thankful that you know the great npr you know i'm I'm just such a huge fan uh sure. that that they would would feel like unwed sailor fits into their programming somehow yeah no that's really cool and i i'm also really struck too by your you know i, I guess the 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 for lack of a better term like the stick to itiveness where you like you said i mean music's the center of your life and you're always going to be continually pursuing it but you're not you're not precious about like you'll you'll do tours of any shape and size um and you'll you know put your you'll do the thing you have been doing regardless of you know how many or how few people are paying attention and i don't mean that in a negative or positive way is it just the the actual creation process that keeps you engaged with it? And that's just like what you are, are continually focused on. Yeah, man. It's just my drive to play music. Okay. Like I love, I love playing live shows. Like it's, it's just as good for me as it is for the Elmwood Sailor fan in the crowd or the one there, you know, that, that is feeling great watching us play live. Like it feels just as great to me. Like it, you know, I mean, it, it's, um, so yeah. And, you know, I just, in all the years I've done that, like I, you know, I just, I cut my teeth on, you know, in, I remember in the roadside van, we had a copy of get in the van. Uh, yep. and that's, that was like my Bible. I mean, that's what I cut my teeth on, you know, was that, that drive and that ambition and you get out there and you play and it doesn't matter if there's no one there or not, like you believe in this, um, you know, the blood, the sweat and the tears and that that's, I've just always connected with that idea and that way of playing music. So even now being 47 and I'm, 
you know, somewhere in Mississippi or something and, you know, there's no one at the show or there's three people at the show. It's, you know, I, I'm not going to lie and say that I'm super stoked that no one's at the show, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I will say that, you know, I still carry that drive and that ambition that I connected with from getting the van where this is important to me. This show is still important to me, even though there's no one here. I'm going to get up and I'm going to play my heart out. Like I'm going to play these songs because I love these songs and they, they're in my DNA and I'm connected to this. So, you know, I'm, I'm releasing something when I get up there. That's just as important as, you know, the, the, the kid in the audience that's feeling something when they're watching us as a fan. So, yeah, man, I mean, it's like I said, I, I'm, I'm a lifer, man. You know, I, uh, whether there's one person there or 5,000 or 50,000, I, this is just what I do. And I, you know, I love it. Right. Well, and I do think that that work ethic uh, approach that, you know, people of a certain generation or are still inspired by people of that particular generation, you know, from the Henry Rollins idea that especially the way that he articulates it in that book of like, yeah, we're just showing up. Like it's the same idea as like showing up at a factory, except it's much less, um, you know, like dangerous or whatever. (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah. Just that, that work ethic really bleeds through. And, you know, and you are getting something out of it. Like yes. when you show up to a factory, you're not getting anything out of that unless you're have some kind of obsession with working with machinery or something. Uh, right. Right. But, right. But yeah, you are, you know, every time you get up on stage, you're, you are getting something out of it. Even if it's a bad show, just the fact that you can get up there and play music on a stage or on the floor in a bar that lets you come in to do that uh, and you're getting your music played over a sound system. So, you know, hopefully it sounds good and you're playing in front of those amps and you're using this equipment that you bought and you're playing this music you created, you're getting something out of that. So, uh, you know, it's, it's always going to give you something back music will you know if if you love it and truly believe in it uh it's gonna be there for you and i i've i've realized recently like you know music is it's been a friend to me like it's it's always been there it's always been close to me and in all the times in my life where i've felt you know depressed or hurt by someone Music has always been there when I needed it. So it's just, it's become such a friend to me and a lifelong friend. It's, it's just, I I could never let that go or give it up. Yeah, no, it's a beautiful sentiment. I, and I, I appreciate it (laughs) because then we, we, we get to follow you along in the musical process. That's really cool. Right. (laughs) Well, I, Jonathan, thank you so much for hanging out. I really appreciate you letting me uh, ping pong around your uh, musical life. Oh man. Thank you so much for having me. That's Jonathan. And like I said, you need to listen to Unwed Sailor. You need to listen to Roadside Monument. Uh, I promise that those will be well worth your time and you will unearth 
hopefully, maybe, potentially, a new favorite band of yours. Um, and like I said, Unwed Sailor, Jonathan is very prolific in that and continues to release cool stuff. Um, I think, if I'm not mistaken, he has like a live record that's coming out on Spartan Records in the near future. But um, yeah, follow along on all the beautiful social media platforms. Socia? Social. There we go. Got to hit that L in there. Um, let's talk about next week. Next week, I have Mario Rubacabla. Or no, that's not. that's wrong. Mario Ruba. Rubel Kaba. There we go. That's what, that's how you hit, you got to hit that L in there. But Mario is the drummer from Rocket from the Crypt, Hot Snakes, Earthless, the dude. He also played in Click Attack Itawi, which I love saying that band name, but I love Click Attack Itawi. I love Mario's drumming. And I, uh, I, I honestly had been punishing him on Instagram to make this interview <laughs> happen and then finally was able to uh, connect the dots via publicist and we, we made it happen and it was great. So Mario is on the pod next week and I am so excited. So that's what we got. And until then, please be safe, everybody.